the new moon, Sarah Teasdale. Day, you have bruised and beaten me. As rain beats down the bright, proud sea. Beaten my body, bruised my soul. Left me nothing lovely or whole. Yet I have wrested a gift from you, Day that dies in dusky blue. For suddenly, over the factories, I saw a moon in the cloudy seas. A wisp of beauty all alone, In a world as hard and grey as stone. Oh, who could be bitter and want to die When a maiden moon wakes up in the sky? Good night. There's a new moon. A new cycle begins and we can remind ourselves of this even at the end of the longest day. We barely notice it at first. It's dark all around. Night by night it thickens. People take photos of it. It hangs over bridges. It keeps us awake. Soon it will start to wane. Like the rest of us, the moon has its off nights. And how are you feeling tonight? I think you can tell, can't you? I feel like I just sound bet down and exhausted. Gee. <laughs> it's pure jazz. <laughs> well, that's the thing as well. Jazz is punk. Jazz is punk. Like. It was, it was like going clubbing. It wasn't like stuffy assholes sitting clicking their fingers. It was people drinking absinthe or, or loading them and like going to a club and taking E in the 90s. Or Jazz was the drum and bass of its day. Or the, you know, they were, they were rebels and they were rock stars before they were rock stars. I'm Regan Hutchins and I once made a radio series Morning, Noon and Night. I wanted to travel slowly through the waking and sleeping hours. Everyday actions, a walk to school, an afternoon nap, an evening prayer. I wondered what our daily routines might say about our worldview. Well, it was broadcast in the early spring of 2020 and in the weeks that immediately followed the broadcast, our mornings, noons and nights became strange lands for most of us. In Ireland, at 8pm, we were asked to stand on our doorsteps to applaud health workers and carers, while in Spain, my friend Jamie Nancy was questioned by military when he was out walking his dog at night. And when I went home, I realised that when I was in the bathroom brushing my teeth to get ready for bed, I realised that I actually had a full face of makeup on. <laughs> in this new series of Morning, Noon and Night, we'll make time again to pause and think about how we spend our hours. We'll take a snapshot of some aspects of our world as it is now, some familiar, some less so. And this night, we'll walk into the dark city park, passing brightly lit windows. We'll take a night flight, hear moon music, and we'll spend the night alone on a bog. But first, we'll join the singer-songwriter and diva, Jamie Nancy, on the streets of Valencia in Spain 
where he lives with his husband Michael. It's early in 2022 and Jamie's recovering from Covid and he's apprehensive, but he's putting on a brave face. Would you like to walk down Escalante or would you like to walk down the seafront? We're walking in the old fishing area of the city, El Cabanal, which is regenerating like the moon above our heads. Jamie wrote a song, Escalante Street, inspired by his adopted area and by lockdown. He's playing a gig just outside the town and I'm walking him to the venue. Escalante Street, I mean, first and foremost, it's a love song. That was what I was writing. I was clinging to love. It's also some ways about mental health, really needing reassurance that there's, that everything's going to be okay, that there is still hope and that there's joy and love in the world. I just think I was inspired by the act of dancing on the street because we did actually come out and dance. At night when there's nobody around and we were walking the dogs, we'd share our or earbuds and just dance dance with each other or have dance-offs What did you have to do tonight before coming out of your house. I actually just had to give myself a pep talk to say, this is what you love doing and this is your thing. I'm kind of going over everything before I go on stage about what could possibly happen and what should happen. And then when I'm on stage, I don't think at all. And then when I'm off stage, I go home and analyse everything that I did on stage, neurotically. (laughs) Can you describe what you're wearing? Oh my God, I am wearing some vintage Levi's that I picked up at the market, uh, a black Adidas tracksuit top, a fabulous chiffon scarf that I got from my electrician, and a black bolero hat. Well, I'm wearing a green V-neck and a grey shirt. So... (laughs) (laughs) We'll rejoin Jamie's dark odyssey later on, but there's another Irish man in Spain. The writer Stephen Phelan is a traveller and an adventurer, despite a morbid fear of flying through the night. Standard procedure for flying in the hours of darkness is to dim the cabin lights before takeoff. Other light sources are brightened by contrast. The seat belt and exit signs, the yellow flashes at the wingtips, the blue and green strips that line the taxiways. And if it's clear enough out there, the moon and stars above the control tower, glowing like they will over my grave. I'm given to such thoughts because I have such a morbid fear of flying, 
and especially at night. Also, because I'm usually stupefied by alcohol and tranquilizers by the time we push back. But flying in the dark feels to me like floating in the void. As we reach cruising altitude, my face and palms ice over with doom sweat. As wretched as I seem to those who share my seat row, they appear not to know that I am keeping the plane aloft by pulling very hard on the armrests. That their lives depend neither on physics nor the mercy of God, but on the nervous energy that flows into the airframe from my white knuckles. This is bound to sound perverse, not to mention privileged, but over the last 20 odd years I have lived in Australia, Japan and Argentina. Long haul destinations at the furthest ends of flight corridors out of Europe. I'd keep watching the window for signs that the world was still out there and that I was still in it. A single point of light would do. An oil rig maybe, a mountain hut, some unknown city blooming like phosphorescent plankton on a black sea. Strange to report then that the one and only time I've ever been truly calm on an aeroplane was also the closest I've ever felt to flying through interstellar space. It was the dead of night and the dead of winter, somewhere off the top of Russia, and I thought I saw the sun rising way too early. But the rays that manifested off the port side were a cosmic shade of green, waving and flexing like fingers, reaching across the sky to gently brush the wing. The northern lights, obviously, but in my heightened state of solitude, under heavy sedation, I believed that they were glowing for me personally, and I received them as messages from the heavens. You're alive, they seemed to tell me, quite kindly, and you're lucky. Stephen Phelan observes the world from 35,000 feet above sea level. Rachmaninoff's all-night vigil calls us to observe, to keep watch at night. We guard our neighbours, we nurse the young, the sick and the dying, and we sit with the dead. To observe is to attend. In the growing dark, we can pay attention. In loving memory of Betty, who passed away September 2010, and the trees are sweetly blooming. I think this was maybe the first one in the park that I noticed, and I was curious to know who Betty was, um, who put this here to, to remember her, and, and why here. My friend and neighbour Claire Spain and I sometimes walk in the Phoenix Park just before sunset. She's observed small signs around the park that others, like me, just walk past. Her vigilance is linked to her empathy, and on one walk, as darkness grows, Claire tells me how the act of noticing and remembering has helped her with her own pain. So we did this 
walk last year, one evening around the same time as now, it's beginning to get dark, and you told me about your fascination with the memorials that are around the Phoenix Park, and I haven't stopped thinking about them since, and I see them now everywhere I go. Yeah, well, me either. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I suppose in terms of my own grief, it relates to two children that we lost in the early stages of, of pregnancy. We had named them, but they never, they never made it as far as meeting us. And it's been difficult to share those names. So I wonder if they're part of that for those who are memorialised in the park who didn't die here or didn't have a connection to the place. It, it's somewhere else for, for their, their loved ones to, to grieve and to be out in the world with that grief rather than confining it to home or confining it to somewhere consecrated. It can be just out in the world and with them instead. You're bringing us to an area which is a set of benches that are staring at trees. I can already see in the twilight a plaque is gleaming. This one's dedicated to Sadie and it has a date on it and it says, You were here, you existed, you are loved, Mommy. I don't know anything about the Mommy who presumably put the, the plaque here but something about the wording of it spoke to me about my, my own experience. Uh, you have a loss that seems insurmountable but it's not recognised as the loss of a child it's not legally recognised as such it's not practically recognised as, as such and it's very difficult for other people to relate to but those precious few weeks where I was an expectant mother are something that still give me a lot of comfort. I wouldn't take it back for all that we went through. And I know that part of them lives on in me physically. There's cell transfer that occurs during a, a pregnancy from the fetus to the mother from the very early stages and it will be there and it will be detectable for, for the rest of my days. That can't be denied, so there's a comfort in that. Later we'll follow Claire out of those woods and we'll walk with her to her home in Stonybatter. If we were nosy neighbours, we'd stare into people's windows as we pass them. China dogs, progress flags, giant TVs and expensive shutters. But when we follow Leo Osterwegel down the streets of his hometown Leiden in the Netherlands, he shows us how looking into brightly lit windows isn't just a national pastime, it's an art.
Yeah, in the 1600s, there was a, a, a group of immigrants, refugees really. They left England because of religious prosecution and they came to the Netherlands and lived in Leiden. And then they decided that the Netherlands was not the right place for them and they migrated to America. And they were the Pilgrim Fathers and the Mayflower. So the, the founding fathers of uh, the United States. I'm just spotting spotting some windows over there. If we I need to walk a little bit further down. We're standing here and looking at a house, no curtains. Everything is lit, pictures on the wall, people doing their business. Uh, third floor, somebody playing a guitar. No, no blinds, leave the curtains open. Uh, Dutch people love looking at into the windows themselves. You don't make it obvious. There's a way of, of looking. You sort of look sideways without turning your head too much. You turn your eyes a little bit. And, and you might slow down a little bit, but not too much, because you don't want to intrude into their privacy. But we look like tourists, uh, a bit lost and looking around, you know. There are a few explanations. and. One of them is that it's a Calvinist society. We have nothing to hide. Please look into our house. You know, we are upright citizens. We are modest. We, we don't show off our wealth. You're allowed to have beautiful diamonds, but make sure they don't sparkle too much. My mother always insisted of leaving the curtains open. She always said, don't close the curtains. It is ongezellig. It's unsociable. It's not cozy. Yeah, it's just the way it is, you know. It's normal, normal behavior. I can imagine in another country, if you're standing here describing what you see, people might uh, call and the police turns up, you know. Happy New Year, Happy New Year. 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 Windows. Charles Baudelaire. There is nothing more profound, more mysterious, more dazzling than a window lighted by a single candle. In that black or luminous square, life lives, life dreams, life suffers. Across the ocean of roofs, I can see a middle-aged woman, her face already lined, who is forever bending over something, and who never goes out. Out of her face, her dress and her gestures, out of practically nothing at all, I have made up this woman's story or rather, legend. And sometimes I tell it to myself and weep. If it had been an old man, I could have made up his just as well. And I go to bed, proud to have lived and to have suffered in someone besides myself. Perhaps you will say, are you sure that your story is the real one? But what does it matter what reality is outside myself, so long as it has helped me to live to feel that I am alive and to feel the very nature of the creature that I am.
Here's a real story about one treasured night, except that the story is set in the day under a hot West Cork sun. It's the story of a small boat crossing from Baltimore to Cape Clear Island. The story is told at night, around a table after dinner. Plates are piled and wine is poured. It has all the flotsam of a late-night salty sea yarn. We have a modest craft owned by my aunt Patricia. 15-foot cabin cruiser. <laughs> Plastic bucket like. There's a willful daughter insisting on making the crossing, my mother Eileen. Oh, I desperately wanted to go to Cape. If I get something into my head that I want to do it, I want to do it today. <laughs> There's a boatman, their dada, my grandfather Michael O'Regan, a Baltimore man who knew every ripple and current from there to Cape, and who knew well that it was not the day to take a boat to the island. I suppose he, he was so familiar with the waters. Mm. He more or less mm. did know that it wasn't suitable. It was rough in the harbour, wasn't it? I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. Of course, there's a stretch of water known far and wide for its treachery. And there's a really bad passage of water between Cape Clear and Shirkin. It's actually called the Gascanon, which is like the Bermuda Triangle. They say, you know, I mean... And we have a witness, reliable or otherwise. My father, John. There was a pretty bad swell. We were down below the swell and we were struggling. This is also a story about other nights, many other nights, when I couldn't get to that table. Restrictions came and went and for months I dreamt of those nights, the food, the storytelling. Imagine how precious that fragmented story was to me then. It was recorded long before the pandemic. I labelled it The Tale of the Plastic Bucket and I played it again and again during every lockdown in Dublin when that table was as lost to me as the city of Atlantis. Dada then had sent both of you to get down below. Get in the cabin. Get in the cabin. Down below. Down below. It's all one level, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't don't exaggerate the boat, it's in the cabin. <laughs> you had to take a step down <laughs> to get there. John was sitting calmly, Eileen was crazy, screaming, roaring, everything. Dada was at the wheel, obviously. And he was a, not a man of great height. To save us, I had to make sure that he was still holding onto the wheel. <laughs> Can you remember me screaming or anything? We no, started laughing. Clearly, pure, panic, pure fear, like yes. like, a, like a hurricane inside in the cabin. It really? was oh, dreadful. Really? It was Regan, really mm. and truly very... horrific. The noise. It was not. What funny. the focus was on, just purely old survival. And the other was the calmest. And then he just saw a little space, and he turned the boat round. Yeah. For home. Yeah. And once we turned. Like, it was like a different day, wasn't yeah. it? Oh, absolutely. Sea didn't different. change, but... One minute we were in a monster, yeah. and yes. suddenly, then we, suddenly turned, yeah. we turned, we were in the normal sea. And we didn't come back into Baltimore, we went into Shirkin. The nearest pub <laughs> for I hot whiskies. I, I will never forget putting my feet on terra firma, on Lend. And, of course, I think from that day onwards, when Dada would say, we're not going out there today, we would not go out there again.
Four minutes to curtain, Miss Piggy. No, four minutes to get there. We're back in Valencia, in Spain. Take me dancing. Singer Jamie Nancy has almost reached the venue for his first concert after his COVID. Do you need to do vocal exercises now? It's January 2022. Mummy made me mash my M&M's. That looks amazing in there. That's the, that's the sex workers bar, apparently. Oh, I don't know. There's well, just loads of old men, like, but really old, some of them. And there is, yeah. The graffiti on the wall is great. It looks like Keith Haring. That's new. I haven't, never saw that before. Um, they're all watching television, are they? Or maybe playing cards. Oh, yeah, that's what they're doing. They could be playing cards. Do you have a, an apprehension about returning to regular gigs? You know, are you nervous about starting all that again? That whole process is so exhausting now because I'm super out of practice, but I'm super out of practice even with talking to people. You're quite afraid of getting COVID. Well, I have MS, so nobody knew what that would do, what COVID would do to it. I was a hypochondriac anyway because of my MS. I would always, because the symptoms are so sporadic and random. Anytime I've ever had a twinge or a sideways fart, I've thought, is this COVID or is this MS? I really appreciate the opportunity that I've been given to go up on stage and sing for people. Everything else I have to do in my life is an effort. But singing is something that just comes so easy for me and people respond to it and I don't know why, I don't, but I don't question it anymore. I just do it. There's Michael. Hi. Mummy made me match my M&Ms. <laughs> Jamie has been a brat, stamping been... and screaming up the streets. Is he giving out? No, she's interviewing me. And if I wasn't talking to her, he was ignoring me. <laughs> Jamie, the best of luck. Oh, shut up. <laughs> you don't say best of luck. You say, break a leg. Let him have it. Our moon is shining overhead, it shines on tides and werewolves, migrating birds and composers. In a house filled with music and kinsale in County Cork, Linda Buckley began to learn Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Now the composer, working with the pianist Michael McHale, has turned her own light on that iconic work. The piece is called Solas Nagali, which means moonlight in Irish, and it's very much rooted in 
the atmosphere of the original Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. He had been obviously suffering from deafness and had a lot of inner turmoil and this is definitely expressed in those pieces. So it's about kind of connecting to that human part of him rather than him necessarily just as a composer. I suppose I was trying to almost connect with something from my younger self because that's one of the first pieces that I loved to play, well, especially the opening of it. I mean, it was written in very much the heart of lockdown. There was a lot of uncertainty. I was in a headspace of kind of uncertainty in a way, but I wanted to almost capture that. There's often these long semi-silences, but they're not exactly silences because there's a lot of resonance from the piano that's just been decaying of whatever chords they've just been playing. So it's about kind of staying in that atmosphere and then taking time before moving on. I grew up in this very beautiful remote place, the old town of Kinsale, and um, I always remember seeing the moon and its reflection on the water at night on the sea. So I suppose it's about that feeling for me and capturing that. And there's something very special about ideas that emerge at night, I think. There's something about the quietness of that space. And I suppose a lot of my work is connected to conjuring up a particular atmosphere. And often that is a nocturnal atmosphere. Walking here at night, does it have a feel for that you could describe? Well, it's a different experience walking here at night. The deer behave differently. The sounds are different. People behave differently. It's amazing how quiet it is, even in the middle of the city. Our night is almost over. My friend Claire Spain and I are hurrying home from a walk in the Phoenix Park. Claire has shown me some of the informal memorials which have helped her and her husband Andrew with their grief over the loss of two miscarried children. A timeless act of remembrance. I will remember all of these people who are memorialised here and I I think there's a universal comfort in in the idea of of remembrance. I have noticed that all of the plaques around have the names and I was going to ask whether the names that you and Andrew have would be shared with the public or not. So a few weeks ago, I was having a really hard time. I was struggling and my grandmother called me. She said to me, I've never asked you because I didn't want to upset you. Did you have names for them? And it was the most helpful and disarming thing that anyone could have asked me, especially at that moment, that she was recognising the loss as being on par with the the loss of any of her her great-grandchildren. I told her the names and she immediately got my aunt to write them down so that she could have them stitched onto her family quilt.
Hello cats. So this was made for her by my aunt and my aunt has just been adding the names to it over the years. So here's the little one over to the side that she added for, for our two. So that's Phoenix Arthur and Serena Bella in a little heart on the margins of the quilt. Um, so Phoenix is because of the Phoenix Park, because in the oh eight years it took us to become pregnant with them through all our trials and tribulations, the, the park was always a sanctuary for us, whatever was going on. Um, and I just liked the name Arthur. Um, and then Serena Bella. Andrew chose the, the Serena uh, and I chose the, the Bella. Bella was a, a character from a, a film, uh, an adoptive mother in a film called The Hunt for the Wilder People that I just thought was the sweetest character that the name stuck with me. Your cats are curious as well. They are. <laughs> we never get a minute's peace. No cats allowed on the quilt. <laughs> Try and stop them. Where are you, Claire? I am right here with Andrew in a, in a little circle underneath. I want to share one last night with you, a sleepless night in May, all alone in a field by a bog under an almost full moon. The owner of the field knows I'm there and, of course, I'm not alone. The drumming snipe, plaintive curlew and many soundless things also know I'm there and they watch me as I put up my tent at dusk. I once camped overnight in Georgia and the first night I couldn't sleep a wink because the creatures were very curious about my tent and a little bit later on other creatures included wolves moving across the forest I was terrified now I was with people that time they were sleeping in a jeep very close to my tent so the next night when we were looking for somewhere to camp, we found a dam and I slept like a baby because whatever was outside, even if it was a big grizzly bear, I wasn't going to hear it over the sound of a dam. It's really such a calm night. This sleeping bag is like a warm bath at the edge of a bog in the very middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning. If I go outside, it means I have to put on my trousers, put on my boots, make a lot of noise with zips. And if I don't, I won't know what it looks like outside. 
something is rustling behind me. Even under the moonlight, the bog out there, because I'm only at the edge of it, looks black. To me, it looks like a sea, something that's a, a different element to the land that I'm standing on. Cloud has just come over the moon, and everything is darker. And it's frightening the shit out of me. I think I'd like to sleep. It's three o'clock in the morning. There's a stillness now. And there's a heaviness in the air now that there wasn't a while ago. I can feel it, and I can hear it, actually. Everything is subdued under it. For now. This series of morning, noon and night opened in the hour before sunrise. We were walking along the seafront in Saint-Nazaire in France with a friend of mine who's a sailor who said that in the world of sailing, the hour before sunrise is the most bleak. It's the coldest, the darkest. And here at the edge of the bog, it's also the hour before sunrise. And a chill has entered this tent. A wind is rising outside. It feels dark. It feels a little bit forlorn. It's time to get up and to walk in this last hour of darkness as night becomes the morning and this phenomenal sound begins to pick up. And I hope that I have my boots still outside. It is pitch black. <laughs> 